This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. I want to invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42. If you don't have a, a copy of God's Word, there are Bibles on the side here that we'd love for you to grab one, and you'll find Genesis 42 on page 33 in those Bibles. I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word open as we go through it together this morning. Now let's pray and ask God for his help as we look to his word. Lord, we love you. We praise you and thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. Lord, thank you for gathering us together today to hear your word and to be, we pray, washed in it. We pray that as we hear the gospel, our faith would be stirred anew and we would leave behind shame and doubt and have a great hope in the future. Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself to be a wise and good and powerful God in your word. We need that. We need you. And so, Lord, we, you know we have many people this morning who are in trial and difficulty. We pray that you would lift up their heads to Christ. Lord, there are many here that are wandering. We pray that you would give them eyes to see the beauty of Christ and how foolish it is to throw our lives away. Lord, we pray that you would save some today. We love you and we need you for this time. Be our teacher, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've made a distinction as we've gone through Genesis, as we've thought about God's sovereignty and his providence. And we've said that his sovereignty is essentially his ability, his right to control all things. Psalm 115, verse 3, there is a God in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. And then we said that providence is taking God's sovereignty and being reminded of his goodness and wise control over all things. So it's his wise and purposeful sovereignty. The nature of, that's the nature of it. So it's not just that he has control over all things, but that he works those things together according to wise purposes. Even purposes, Romans 8, 28, that are for our good for your good if you're in Christ. Now, if we believe that about God, we are going to see things in Genesis and all of Scripture differently than if we don't. We're going to notice patterns, and we're going to notice symbols and promises that are made and kept, that are shaped and molded for a purpose. We're going to see characters that understand this, God, and know that all of these things happen for a purpose, and we're going to see those that don't, that think this is a random world, and I've got to do all that I can to survive and get what I need to do it. 
We're going to see characters like that in our passage today. We're going to see events that remind us of other events, that remind us of the overall story of redemption and reconciliation between a holy God and a sinful people on the cross. Now, believing in God's providence uh, not only helps us in our hermeneutics, so our, that's a fancy word of saying how we interpret the scriptures, but how we interpret our lives. So we can, we can exegete, get the meaning out of a text. We can do the same thing with our lives, events that happen in our lives and believe that God is good and he does all that he pleases. Even though we may not understand all the details of why this or that happened to us. We want to know those things. One day we will know those things, but we may not know those things in this life. But we will know that there is a purpose. This thing that's happened to me is not accidental. It's not haphazard. It doesn't fall outside of God's good purpose for me and and for his people. So this affliction that I'm going through is hard, but I know it's doing something in me. Joseph models this kind of attitude, this kind of theology, doesn't he? And at the end of the book, the, kind of the famous verse there in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's kind of a reference to his whole life. To bring about that many people should be kept alive that they are today. All the themes in our story are going to rush together in that one verse. Grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust in the providence of God. Doesn't excuse the evil intentions and actions of his brothers or anyone in your life. But we do see that God orchestrates it, all of it, for good. And in Joseph's case, so that many would be kept alive. And in Jesus' case, so that many would be kept from eternal wrath-bearing punishment in hell. And be forgiven and reconciled to God. So my prayer is that we would see the scriptures and our lives like this. Like Joseph does. That we would be anchored in God. His grace, his love, and his providential care for us. That's what the it points to in Genesis 50, 20. God meant it for good. That includes all the injustice that Joseph has experienced. A murder plot turned to a plan to sell him into slavery for cash, then being shackled and deported to Egypt and sold again, and then being unjustly accused and imprisoned through no fault of his own. God meant it. Friends, this is not a theoretical doctrine. God's sovereignty This is going to be a life rope for you. This is not something that we can debate about just because it's fun to debate. This is life. Where do you want to turn in the middle of the bottom of your affliction if not to a sovereign God? In our passage this week and today, we begin to see the for good part. We've seen the it, but let's think about the for good. We've seen seven years of plenty that have given way to famine. Not only in Egypt, but in all the earth. And it's being saved, the earth is being saved from starvation. And now this exiled slave and prisoner is going to stand as judge over all those that have sinned against him. And revenge and justice and vengeance are in his grasp. But so is forgiveness and reconciliation. Joseph's treatment of his brothers and their response to him, they're going to hold out just a treasure trove of gospel truth for us over the next few weeks as we look at these chapters together. They're going to help us to learn to trust him in our own trials. 
So we're going to walk through this chapter in four scenes as an outline. I'll give you those scenes up front so you can, if you want to know where they are, where they're coming. First, we'll see the sons of Israel go to Egypt. That's scene one. Then we're going to see Joseph question his brothers in this pretty tense scene uh, in scene two. And then the next scene, he's going to send his brothers back to Canaan. And finally, we're going to see their journey and arrival as they report back to their father, Jacob. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's look together at scene one. The sons of Israel go to Egypt. And I, I get a kick here out of the, the first kind of interaction be, between uh, Jacob and his sons. Look at chapter 42, beginning in verse one. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Why are you guys sitting around doing nothing, right? What are you doing? Be useful. We're starving. Go down to Egypt and buy some food so that we don't die. Jacob has lots of issues. Um, We know that, but he is still here directing his family and giving leadership to them. Uh, That's good. The the phrase that, that, that phrase that they may live and not die, that's a theme that we're going to see throughout this chapter as well, Uh, not just for their situation, but for Joseph's ministry really as a whole. And so he sends them and they're going to go. Verse 3, so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Now Moses is writing in such a way as to help us see where we've been and where we're going. So we see where we're going by the way he's describing his sons, uh, Jacob's sons, as Joseph's brothers. That hints to us that they're probably going to have interaction with Joseph soon. And we're going to see that. And then the way that he describes Jacob's relationship to Benjamin, it reminds us of, of where we've been. He's called Joseph's brother. It's kind of a repetitive way, which I think is just a reminder to us that he is Joseph's brother, but he's his full brother um, and the son of Rachel, Jacob's favored wife. And now Jacob favors him. And so apparently Jacob has not made any progress in that favoritism category, in his partiality to his family. The same sin that had dogged him earlier that we saw is now still present, obviously. Not only has Jacob favored Rachel over Leah, but he's showed partiality clearly to the sons, Rachel's sons over Leah's sons. And this has caused a massive fracture in the family. Fault lines are still visible. Look at the way he talks to them when they, when they seek to bring Benjamin with them to Egypt down at the end in chapter 43, verse, or 42, verse 38. But he said, listen to this. We want, they want to bring Benjamin back to Egypt. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. The only one left? Wait a minute. Thanks, Dad. Who are we? He, he calls Benjamin his only son. So, so, so he's got that at work. We can clearly see that in Jacob. And, and we understand his fear for sending Benjamin back with these guys because last time he did that, he sent his favored sons with Leah's sons. He didn't come back. Now, Jacob probably doesn't know the details, but I think he suspects they had something to do with Joseph's death. 
or disappearance. So, so pick it up in verse 5. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And I just want to observe that this famine is affecting everyone and it is not random. We said already that the psalmist in Psalm 105 describes the way this comes about as God summoning a famine. Psalm 105 verse 16, so that he could send Joseph. If you just keep reading Psalm 105, you're going to see that pattern again. Later, it says that God turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate his people. Psalm 105 verse 25, so that he could send Moses. So the suffering and affliction that comes is for a purpose. Namely, that God would receive glory. That his redeeming mercy would be lifted high. Why is this man born blind, Jesus? Who sinned, him or his parents? Neither. But so that the works of God would be displayed in his life. Is that the way you think about suffering and pain? It has a purpose. It's going to bring this fractured family together, a famine. Then the Bible changes the way that we think about these things, doesn't it? The way that we think about, about calamity and suffering. It should change the way that Jacob thinks about his role as a father. The promise of salvation is coming through his line, his family, and he is completely ruled by his desires and his preferences. It's all about him, who he likes and doesn't like. We ought to be praying, Romans 12, too, for our own hearts and for our family. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That by testing, we may discern what the, the will of God is, is good and acceptable and perfect. Pray that our minds would be renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we wouldn't have worldly thinking like this. And that we would be washed in the word. And that washing would wash away some of that worldly ideology that's, that's on us. As we walk with God and walk with Jesus, that we would be renewed. As we serve one another in the local church. As we share the gospel. As we endure suffering. See that we're different. We're set apart. To show the transformation that the gospel brings. In your life and in my life, we fit into this big story that God is telling. That is who we are. That is where we're going. So pray that we would see all of life through that lens. Not everyone in this story does, as we're going to see. So Joseph's brothers, except for Benjamin, are now headed down to Egypt. And that's going to take us to the second scene, scene two, where Joseph is going to question his brothers. So look at verse six. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. This is an incredible, incredible scene, isn't it? Joseph has, has set this system up of, of storing and distributing grain, selling it, making it possible for people to survive the famine. And of all the stations or the cities that their brothers go to, guess whose they go to? His. And you can imagine the way that people treated a guy like this. 
how sought after he would be, how reverenced he would be. He saved them and is saving them. So they're treating him with the utmost respect. Second in command to Pharaoh. When you walk up on this scene, you don't have to wonder who's in charge. You know who's in charge. And the brothers just demonstrate it by bowing. You remember how much they hated that dream in Genesis 37? Hated it. They're bowing to their brother, who they're going to later call the Lord of the land. We've already seen the nations bow to Joseph in, in, in Egypt, and now 10 of his 11 brothers are going to bow to him. So this dream is slowly coming to pass. And we don't know if Joseph is like constantly keeping an eye out for his brothers. What if they come one day? Or he's just totally trying to put them out of their mind. But the day does come when they come to Egypt and he sees them. Look at verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. That word recognized uh, can also mean just identify. We know that's kind of synonymous, but it's the, the same word used back in Genesis 27, 23, when Isaac did not recognize that it was Jacob, and Esau, or, but Esau, so he was deceived. Then again in chapter 38, verse 25, when Tamar sent Jude, Judah's staff and cord and seal, uh, he recognized them, he identified them. Kind of that irony is also kind of loaded in this, this word, this picture. Now the sons of Jacob don't recognize their own brother, but he recognizes them, which is, gives him a distinct advantage in this conversation that's about to happen. And so he comes up with this, I think, brilliant plan to test them. We don't know Joseph's complete, full motivation at this point for doing what he does with his brothers, but we know the result is that he's going to gain information about his father and his younger brother, and he's going to expose their sin, and he's going to expose it in a way that leads them to confess it. He treats them, so first he treats them like strangers and he speaks to them harshly and really just accuses them of being spies in the land. So notice how this, this happens. Look at verse nine. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. I love it. Just Moses reminds us, Joseph here remembered, in case we were wondering, he remembered his dreams. He remembered the sheaves of grain bowing down and the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowing down to him. So it confirms, not only confirms God's word, but Something's going to happen in the future because we don't see the sun and moon here. We, we don't see all the stars. So we, we anticipate that that's, that's coming. He accuses them to, to, to be spies. And that when he talks about the nakedness of the land, he's just referring to weak points in the land. You're just here to, to try to figure out how you can steal food. And he's going to pressure them now to give more and more information to prove that they're not spies, which is, I think, a great, great plan. They claim to be honest men. I think Joseph has his doubts about that. Don't you? Honest? Are you honest? Give me a break. But the more he presses, the more they reveal. So verse 12, he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest 
is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies, but this you shall be tested. And we'll, we'll get to that more in a second. So they're giving facts about themselves, but I think what's absent from their kind of retelling of who they are is just where they fit in kind of the big story, the theological framework for who they are. They are from one father, sure, but they could say more about that. They could say they're from one man, Adam. And they were, Adam was made in God's image, and Adam sinned. And God's, in his mercy, promised through Adam's line, Noah, and later down the line to Abraham, and Abraham's sons and their sons, and even them, that he would send a deliverer to crush the head of the seed of the serpent, to make all things that are wrong right. We're part of that promise. Those that bless us will be blessed. Those that curse us will be cursed. They leave all that off. All the, of the good news, the fear of the Lord, the, the hope that's within them. They just, they, they, they show themselves to almost be like just hungry travelers, like everyone else trying to buy bread. And I would just say, may that, that not ever be true of us. That we don't just say we are just like everybody else. And kind of my goal at work or my goal in my neighborhood or my goal in my baseball team or in class is just to kind of fit in. That's not God's plan. It's to shine like stars, isn't it? To bring glory to him, to show who he is. So when you have an opportunity, tell the story. Share the gospel. Tell people where we fit in and where they fit in. But the brothers here are, are vague and, and ironically vague because they just kind of gloss over that one little detail about that one brother who is no more. Just imagine Joseph's expression when they say that. So Joseph is going to continue the test. Verse 15. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place until, unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, you are surely spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So the first test is to select one messenger from the brothers, send him back to Benjamin to prove, bring him back, and, and we can know you're not spies. And he's going to give them three days in prison to think about it. So just note the irony. Just like Joseph was falsely accused, now the brothers falsely accused. Just like Joseph was in prison, now they are imprisoned. Remember, Joseph named his, his son Manasseh, saying that, that God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house, but now it seems those memories of hardship are flooding back. And I think we see a principle here of sowing and reaping, don't we? Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever, whatever one sows that, he will also reap. Friends, we know from reading this story that these men deserve this. They deserve worse than this. They're reaping what they've sown. And friend, I just want to let you understand that that principle is true for you as well. Perhaps you're, you're here and you're, you're not a Christian or you haven't thought of yourself in that way or you haven't been around uh, church a lot. And thank you for listening to a long sermon uh, about, about the Bible. The Bible says that, that we cannot escape God's judgment on us because we have all sinned against him. We can't escape his justice. 
and the wages of our sin is death. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. The world is going to tell you that you need to look to yourself for answers. When things get hard, look within yourself, trust yourself, trust your desires. If anyone tells you to go against your desires, you shouldn't listen to them. Friends, the Bible's message is exactly the opposite. The problem is within us. We have to look outside of us for help an alien righteousness that only comes through Christ. We are born sinners, rebels against the holy God who made us. We are full of selfishness and pride. And as we, as we live, we just show that more evidently, just like these brothers have. We deserve judgment. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. It is essential that you understand that. If you want to understand Christianity, it's essential that you understand that you're guilty before a holy God. There is no good news for you unless you understand that. Now, let's look together at the next scene to see what happens next. Scene three, we're going to see Joseph now sending his brothers. So I want to, I want to imagine, put myself in that jail cell, cell for three days. Uh, they're in custody those have got to be pretty scary conversations. Surely the brothers had expected the worst. What's going to happen now? But that is not what they receive. Look at verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined when you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Joseph provides a way for them to live and not die. That's that phrase again from verse two. Instead of them all staying in prison and sending one to go get Benjamin, Joseph says, now just one of you can stay behind. And all can go back and you can bring all this food and provision to your family and and then bring your youngest brother back. If you're honest men, you'll do this. And so that they're gonna find themselves in the same situation of having these questions to answer about the favored son and bringing him back and all those things. So it is certainly a test for them still. But this is unexpected mercy. And I say mercy because Joseph is here thinking about their, not just his brothers, but their families and their children. It's already been three days that he's held them in prison and they're starving. It's as if his conscience is is pricked. And why would that be the case? Because he fears God, he says. It's not the brothers who mention God in any of their conversation. It's this Egyptian Lord whom we know to be Joseph. He fears God and then he extends mercy. And this mercy has a sacrificial and a substitutionary shape, doesn't it? Sometimes we see these unexpected mercies take place on the third day in Scripture. It was on the third day in Genesis 22 when Abraham lifted his eyes to Mount Moriah with the sacrifice of Isaac, his son, on his heart and mind. But God did not allow the boy to die. There was mercy. There was a substitute. He provided another And here we see one brother act as a substitute for all the brothers to stay, but instead of staying behind, one will stay behind and be bound and be in prison so the others can go free. 
One will suffer in the place of the many. This mercy of sacrifice and substitution, it's going to bring about transformation. Look at how the other brothers respond there in verse 21. Then they say to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when we, he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. We're guilty. Friend, we can never be saved from our sin without admitting our sin. Uh, we, we won't be declared innocent if we don't first admit that we're guilty. And here, God has provided a way for you and me to be saved. Confess your sin. Call out to him. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. He's the one that all the pictures of substitution and atonement in the Old Testament point to. The perfect substitute. He's truly God, able to absorb the sin debt that you and I have piled up against a holy God. He's fully man, able to be our right representative on earth, taking Adam's place. He never sinned. He obeyed perfectly, and then he laid his life down in our place, on the cross, where God pours out his judgment on all of our sin. Jesus paid it all. All the debt that we owed was taken care of on the cross. And then on the third day, he arose from the grave. Friend, trust in Jesus. His arms are open. They are open to the guilty. They're open to the sinner that he may make you clean and righteous before God. In the middle of this reaction and, and conversation, which we know is, is happening before Joseph, and he's able to understand what they're saying, as we'll see. One of the brothers speaks up. Verse 22, we hear from Reuben. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So we know that Reuben has proven thus far to be an unreliable leader. Uh, he's the oldest, so he's the natural leader. But if you remember back in chapter 35, he slept with one of his father's uh, wives to try to grab power, assert himself. And let's be honest, nobody likes the I told you so guy in the group, right? I told you, I'm going to pile on for you. This is, nobody wants to be that guy. Nobody likes that guy. He's going to continue to lead poorly throughout this story. But there, listen, there is truth in what he says. He, he does call what they did sin, and he admits that there will be a reckoning for Joseph's blood. That is true. God is just. Another positive effect from what Joseph is hearing, what Reuben is saying, is that now he understands, well, not all of my brothers hated me. Not all of my brothers wanted me to, to be thrown in the pit. At least one of them didn't. And it has a, a powerful effect on him. So look at verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And he turned away from them and wept. And he turned to them and spoke to them and took Simeon from them and bound, them, bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave, order, gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money with his sack in his sack and give them provisions for the journey. 
this was done for them. I can't imagine the the flood of emotions that are on Joseph as he's interacting with his brothers. Uh, He has to turn away because he's weeping. Uh, He didn't want his cover to be blown. He still seems to love his brothers. Uh, The pain is deep, but, but these are steps, them admitting their guilt, their wrong, to reconciliation. Not making excuses. Friends, these are good reminders for us in our relationships with, with one another. Not saying, I'm sorry that you were offended by what I said. Or glossing over my sin. You know, that's not true repentance. That's please get me out of this uncomfortable situation as fast as possible. But truly having and displaying remorse for our sin. A godly sorrow, as Paul says, leads to, to life and reconciliation. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Or don't you want mercy? Don't you want to obtain mercy? Don't hide from God. Don't hide your sin from others. Be open, confess, own it, because Christ has owned it. He's paid for it. So, so, Mercy is on the other side of this admittance of guilt. The brothers are going to watch Simeon. Now, Simeon's the second oldest, if you remember. Maybe it was his idea. We don't know to throw We don't know. He was been the second in charge, but he's bound before their eyes. I don't, and I can't imagine that they wouldn't be thinking about Joseph. And yet, he fills their bags with grain, and then sends them away with their money in the bag and provisions for the journey home. They don't purchase the provisions. They don't deserve the provisions. They can't afford to pay back Joseph the debt that, he, that they owe him. He provides grain without cost. And I hope we see gospel imagery there, grace there. As the prophet Isaiah says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come to Jesus. There is good news. God's grace is available for sinners. We can't get get, get there on our own. We can't purchase it on our own. But he freely gives it. He treats us better than we deserve because someone else has paid the price for our sin. It was grace, Newton says, that taught my heart to fear and grace that my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Friend, wouldn't you receive God's grace? Christian, wouldn't you walk in God's grace and not in your own performance? Let's look at our final scene together now. Scene four, the brothers and Jacob as they're gonna journey home and talk to their father. Simeon is bound in captivity The brothers have their grain and their money and they're heading back to Canaan. But they don't know yet about the money in the bag. So look at uh, verse 26. Maybe. They loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder, At the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? 
So they go into this immediate panic. Uh, Do we forget to pay? Are we being set up now to be thieves? Their hearts fail them. And they tremble with fear. And that trembling kind of word reminds us of Isaac's reaction when he realized what had happened, when Jacob had stolen the blessing. But most of all, they see God's providential hand in this, don't they? What is this that God has done to us? And so they bring this, this news and this, this report back to their father and they give a report of all that has happened. So let's pick it up in verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. But the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies but honest men and will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid." If you compare their review of events here with what actually happened, it's going to remind you probably of a child who had a car wreck and is telling you their version of the story. Uh, it's, it's not exactly all there. Uh, they, they, they leave out the three-day stint in prison that they were there. It's like they're trying to soften it, doing the best way that they could possibly get Benjamin Uh, that Simeon is currently bound in custody. They make it sound like he's kind of a guest in a hotel somewhere, but that's not the case. Uh, They invent this idea that if they bring Benjamin, they'll be able to trade freely in the land. We didn't see that anywhere in the interaction. Uh, In reality, it's a life and death situation. They're putting their best foot forward with Jacob for sure. And of course, they left out the whole money in the sack thing until they all unpack their sacks before Jacob and find the money there. And they're all afraid. They all melt it's as if the, the promises of God vanished for all of them in this moment. And it, so, so it's not surprising that fear is the result when we turn away from God and his promises and forget who he is. So listen to the way, again, that Jacob responds there in verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. I think it's interesting how he just blames the brothers for taking Joseph from him and now Simeon. So we get a sense for where, how Jacob is viewing Joseph's situation. And again, he may not know the details, but clearly he doesn't trust them. And now he's focused on how it all is affecting him. It's all against him. He speaks like he has no more children left. So Reuben, again, to the rescue. rescue. He's gonna try and convince his father but in reality, he should have definitely kept his, kept his mouth shut. Uh, look at verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Come on, Reuben. That's a, that, is that a good idea? It doesn't make me want to trust you if you're willing to sacrifice your own sons, my grandsons. So 
it just, again, I think what we're to see here is a stark contrast between Reuben and Judah in a few chapters where Judah's not going to volunteer to sacrifice other people for Benjamin. He's going to volunteer to sacrifice himself. That's a sacrifice that we want to pay attention to as we go through. But Jacob is firm with his decision, verse 38, but he says, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with Sheol, with sorrow to Sheol. So again, you guys don't really count. I had two sons, you took one, and you're not going to get the other. The scene seems and feels hopeless. But it's interesting that earlier in Genesis, we've seen something similar. A place where we were all very similar circumstances and God came through in Genesis 12. If you remember in Genesis 12, you don't have to turn there. There was a famine in the land. And then Abraham went down to Egypt. But before he did, he told Sarah to pretend to be his sister so the Egyptians wouldn't kill him. So Abraham there, of course, made a foolish and faithful, faithless decision. And Pharaoh takes Sarah into his house, and then they give Abraham lots of stuff. Sheep, oxen, donkeys, servants, camels. It's like he's enriched by Egypt, even when he doesn't clearly deserve it. And meanwhile, God is going to send plagues on Pharaoh's house until he lets Sarah go. Abraham then leaves with Sarah and all of the goods. That's history for these patriarchs. That's what God has done before in the past. Not to mention that it's the Exodus in miniature. That's what's going to happen in Exodus. But Jacob and the brothers don't see that pattern or don't think that God would be at work now with them or that he would be preparing something greater for them or keep his promises for them. So it's a good opportunity for us to ask, well, what about me? What about us? What's my reaction when the unexpected and unasked for thing comes into my life? Is God aware? Is God punishing me? But when we can begin at a place of understanding who God is and especially who he is for us in Christ, we can say with 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has has not been perfected in love. As we consider the cross, as we consider perfect Love, what do we have to fear? That God would love us that much to send his own son to save us from our sins. So pray the Lord would help us to grow in our trust and love for him and his word. That grace and forgiveness and reconciliation and trust in the providence of God that are all actively at work here in the story of Joseph, we would see how they all are actively at work even in our own lives. So now, as we look to the the text, we see the true test that Joseph has before his family is going to set in. They are going to be set up, it seems like, as thieves. Are they going to go back? Are they going to abandon their brother? Is he worth the risk? Is Simeon worth it? And we have to wonder what Jacob is thinking in all this. Simeon's gone, and my sons now have this extra money. I've seen that before. I have to wonder where they got this money. That's what, that's what happened when Joseph disappeared. They had all this extra money and one less son. Why would he send Benjamin with these guys? It doesn't look like it's full of hope for us. Friends, even in this situation, in this family, 
here we have, we're going to see hope for reconciliation. And that should remind us that there's hope for us. No matter how bad it looks right now, either in our own lives, in our relationship with someone else that seems irreparable, there's hope. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It not only exposes our guilt, but it gives us a place to go with it, to go to the cross, to Jesus, who bore it, who canceled it and conquered it, and now gives grace freely to those that will turn to him and trust him. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So Lord, help us to believe that and to trust you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would bring about grace in our lives to trust you and to know you. That even now as we respond in song, Lord, we would do it with a heart that is comforted and full of that grace that you have shown us in Christ, that we do not deserve. And Lord, if we find ourselves apart from you, separated from you, and we run to Christ, run to the cross. Lord, we love you and worship you and thank you for your grace to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.